Nobody probably remembers this except for me, but today, well, you probably remember this part. Today is March 7th, 2021. Exactly one year ago, March 8th, 2021, I preached a sermon on the second half of Peter, and then we didn't meet for a long time. <laughs> there was a worldwide pandemic. You don't know about that. And uh, so I feel a little jittery. I'm hoping this next week goes a little smoother this time. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. Jesus, I come to you right now. I thank you for this time to be together. I thank you for time to worship. I confess, Lord, that I am a sinner in need of your grace, that I am one who is prideful, who, who is insecure, who seeks my own glory, that I am one who gets distracted with the things in front of me instead of the things that are above. I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it will speak to us. I pray that you will receive the glory for it. And I pray that you will bless our time, Lord. Let us leave feeling edified. I thank you for your scripture. I thank you that it's perfect. I thank you that it tells us who you are. I confess, Lord, that sometimes it bristles against in a way we don't like, but we should expect that because you're holy, you're sovereign, you're perfect, you're immutable, and we are fallen and fickle and sinful. And so we should expect to run into things, Lord, that that our heart needs to be conformed to. So I pray you will help us this morning. In your name, amen. So I'm old and now, and my body's broken down. If you're going to say I'm not old, it's fine. I've come to terms with it. I don't need, I don't need, your, uh, I don't need your pandering. Uh, but one of the, the things about where I am in this stage in life is I don't help a lot of people move anymore. Uh, I did some of that when I was younger. Um, if you need help moving, look around. There's a lot of young bucks. Ask them. Uh, tell me what time you want the food to be there. I'll be happy to show up with some lunch so everybody can eat and be happy. Um, but I did help a friend move recently who moved into our neighborhood. So I kind of felt like I probably can't not help him move. He's going to be down the street. So I walk over on Saturday morning, and uh, I show up. And thankfully, they had moved like half of their stuff the day before. So the garage is full of stuff, and there's a truck full of furniture. But when I walk up, there's four 13- to 14-year-old boys who are out to prove how strong they are, so I'm thankful that they're there. And then there's three other grown men like me who look like they probably don't have back problems like I do. So thankfully, we hour, hour and a half, we knock it out, then we eat some brisket. It wasn't too bad. It didn't wreck my back. But I was so thankful when I showed up that some of the work had been done, and I was so thankful when I left that it wasn't my house and I wasn't the one moving because they still had to put all the furniture together. They still had to hang all the pictures. They had to put all the silverware away, put the dishes up. They still had to do all the arranging. I showed up with all the other guys to do my part that they needed, but there was work being done before I got there and there was work being done after I got there. And when I was reading through Nehemiah, it really hit me that um, a lot of times we try to take on the role of God or try to put ourselves as more important, but he's working long before we get there. He's going to be working long after we go. He's going to put us in a spot where he wants us to do what he wants us to do for his will, but he's going to be the one to do the work. And as I was reading 
to prepare for this series because um, we decided uh, that we were going to go through Nehemiah as elders. So I, I read in January through Ezra and Nehemiah. And there was a, the very first chapter, the very first four verses of Ezra just hit me. Uh, probably as hard as anything. So I want to actually start with those and read those. So if you go to Ezra, just a few pages over, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to go to Nehemiah chapter 4. And I have Nehemiah chapter 4 and 5. So I'm going to try to make sure that we're not here till mid-afternoon, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff. So uh, that's what Pastor Sean gave me. Don't blame me if you're upset. All right. So I'm just kidding. Uh, so... This is what it says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of God by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Their, their culture was not as much of a written culture as ours is. This is a big deal. This is what he says. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Um, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He keeps saying Jerusalem, this is in Judah. This is not his homeland. He's kind of, he wants to make sure everybody knows where this is. Um, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So to give you some background, Cyrus was a pagan king. He was a pagan king of Babylon. It was Babylon that came to Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and conquered. It was Babylon that forced some of the people of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem to go to Babylon against their will and be uh, a type of slave, so to speak. They were forced to relocate their whole lives. Mass number of people. It was Babylon who came and took the treasures out of the temple of God and took them back for their pagan temples in, the, in, in their city. So Babylon, make no mistake, was no friend of Jerusalem. So this is very significant that God stirs up the heart of this pagan king in this country that conquered his people to send them back. And they, they, he wasn't duped. Look at what he says. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. We have a pagan king here acknowledging who God is and who his power is, and he's sending back. And this really hit me because this is happening in 538 B.C. Nehemiah does not show up in Jerusalem until about 445 B.C. So we have 100 years where God is working his plan before Ezra and Nehemiah ever get there. And that was so encouraging for my heart because it reminded me that no matter how things look, no matter how I feel, no matter how things around me are, God is working his plan and he's able to bring it and bring about his purposes. 
Job says in Job 42.2, I know, he says this about the Lord. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So we need to remember that God, nothing can derail his plan. He's going to accomplish his purposes. Nehemiah is about to get a flood of opposition to the work that he's doing. We're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's all kinds of opposition. Opposition from without Jerusalem, the enemies around them, and opposition from within. They have trouble within their own, within their, their own community trying to hold it together to do the work of God. And this is a, a perfect picture of who we are today. We have opposition in the world coming against us as believers, and we have Satan trying to stir up strife and division within the church. And so I've been so encouraged as, we, as I've been going over Nehemiah, specifically chapters 4 and 5. So let me give you the outline for today. If you want to flip over to Nehemiah 4, we're going to see in chapter 4 that we need to expect opposition to the work of God. And we're going to see also in chapter 4 that we need to remember who God is and we need to embrace our limits. And then finally, we're going to see in chapter 5 that we are sinners and the work is messy because of that. It gets really messy in chapter 5. So let me set the scene before we go into chapter 4 with chapter 3. I thought Pastor Sean did a great job last week with chapter 2 and chapter 3. And if, you, if you've forgotten, at the end, chapter 3 is a list of just things are rolling. The work is humming. They are steaming full, full steam ahead. I mean, if you go back and read chapter 3, you know, they're, they're just checking off all the things they've done. Rebuild the sheep gate, check. Rebuild the fountain gate, check. Rebuild the gate of Yeshahana, check. Rebuild the dung gate, bless those people, check. Rebuild the valley gate, uh, check. Rebuild the fish gate, check. I mean, they're rolling. It looks like they're going to get up in the morning, they're going to knock this wall out by dark, and then they're going to all have a big ice cream social, and nothing's going to stop what they're doing. So they're moving. But we're going to see when we get into chapter 4, there's trouble brewing, and it's been brewing, and it's about to raise up, and we're going to get a big flood of opposition. And it's not because Nehemiah did anything wrong. It's not because he made any mistakes. We're going to see this is part of God's plan and what he's working and how he's moving. And you're going to see that there's opposition from without. Again, that's just like us today, whether it's governments setting up laws that prevent people from being able to meet together, as believers or prevent Christianity from being able in places like China where it's illegal to proselytize or actual terrorism against Christians where churches are attacked or there are mart- people that are martyred for their faith or if it's more subtle like philosophies in academia that want to challenge the gospel or want to build up secular humanism as a God. We have all kinds of opposition today from without. And they're going to have opposition from within. We're going to see some nasty things happening within how they were treating each other and how they were taking advantage of each other. And that's what Satan tries to do today. He wants to come into the church. He wants to stir up rivalries. He wants to stir up jealousy. He wants to stir up anger and bitterness. He wants to get us distracted from the work of the gospel. And we've got to cling to God and we've got to hold on to him Because we know he's won the victory and he'll get us through it. But we shouldn't expect it to be easy. We shouldn't expect that we'll just coast along until we get to heaven and we won't have any difficulties. So let me start by reading the first part of chapter 4. 
So starting in verse 1, this is what it says. My Bible, in the, in the top of it, it says opposition to the work. And then starting in verse 1, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. You can almost see him like clenching his fists and gritting his teeth. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, he's the governor of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it, talking about the wall, for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And then we're going to see Tobiah in verse 3. Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, he decides he needs to jump in on the insult party. Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, Samballad and Tobiah, this is not the first time these two jokers have showed up in Nehemiah. They show up twice in chapter 2. The first time they show up and they're like, hey, what are you doing? We don't want anybody going back to Jerusalem. That place is in ruins for a reason. We want to leave it that way. And so then they begin to question, why, you, why do you want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it? Are you going to rebel against the king? We need, to, we need to tell the king about that. And Nehemiah shuts them both down, shows the paper, shows that he's got royal authority to be there doing the work he's doing. But they still don't like it. So we see chapter 3 is rolling along pretty smoothly. They're getting everything done. And then chapter 4, they see these guys are actually making progress. The people of God are actually moving forward. And so they decide it's time to stir the pot a little bit. So they're going to take it up another notch. Now, we get a, a little hint as to how Tobiah feels about the Jews. Again, he's a Samaritan. He's the governor of Samaria. And when you get to the New Testament, you see there's bad blood on both sides between Jews and the Samaritans. So we don't know exactly what's in his heart. Maybe he's racist and he just hates Jewish people in general. And he likes the fact that their, their crown jewel of his city, Jerusalem, has been lying in ruins all these years. And so he decides that he's going to come in and try to cast some doubt on what they're doing. So he starts taunting them and questioning them. And when it says, he comes in and he starts saying some things that might be lost a little bit on the, us. He says, will they restore it? Talking about the wall. Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they finish up in a day? He's trying to get them to see. This is a big project. These idiots don't have any idea how hard this is going to be, how long it's going to take, how much work it's going to be, how much they're going to have to sacrifice. When he says, will they, when he says, will they sacrifice, one commentator said that could be interpreted as, are they going to pray the wall into existence? Because that's their only hope of this thing actually working. So they're out to plant seeds of doubt. They're out to verbally attack the people of God, hopefully to stir up fear and anxiety so that the work will shut down. And Tobiah, when he jumps in and makes his fox comment, foxes are really light and small. And they kind of, you know, if you've ever seen a fox, they're, they're a little squirrely. They don't step real heavy. They don't want anybody to know what's going on. And they can kind of run light-footed and disappear really quick. So he's basically saying, I can walk up to this wall with a feather and hit it, and the whole feeble thing's going to kind of crumble down. So, you know, they're having this party, this trash-talking party, probably trying to make themselves feel better and run down the Jews, we're going to see it doesn't work. 
So we'll get to how Nehemiah responds in a second. But the first tactic doesn't work. So they're upset, and they decide they're going to take it up another notch. So what they've been doing right now is just trash talking. And sometimes that's all people do. They don't ever have any intention to back up their talk, so they talk a game as big as they can because that's kind of their nuclear weapon. Like, that's their last effort. If you can see through their talk, then it's over. But these guys actually have the intention, it looks like, of backing it up. So if you go on, they're going to bring some other people in. It says they bring in the Arabs and the Ashdodites, and they all get pretty angry. So if you go to verse 7, it says, But when Samballan and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, meaning there may not be any gaps if you want to rush into the city with an army, because back then a wall was really important. It's what kept you safe. So they started to see the breaches were being closed, and they became angry. And they all plotted together to come fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So they're angry that their trash talking hasn't worked. They're angry that they're comforting themselves of these people are idiots, they'll never get it done, is backfiring and they underestimated the people of God. They're angry because they don't want to see the people of God restored. And so they decide it's time for them to do something about it. So any thoughts of this job being too big for the people of God has disappeared. And so they decide, all right, we're going to pull our army we're going to pull our warriors together and we're going to go down there and we're going to flex our muscles and we're going to go in there and throw them into confusion. We're going to stop this once and for all. You can almost picture them thinking about how great it's going to be. They're going to rise in on this, ride in on this blaze of glory. They're going to decimate everything and then they're going to go back and revel in a big party about how stupid these Jewish people are and how mighty and how glorious they are. And so... Nehemiah's got all of these things coming at him. He's got pressure from the outside, people verbally, and now he's about to get pressure from the outside with potential threat of physical force. And so, how does he respond? Does he seem surprised? Does he seem despondent? Is he like, God, I thought you said all this stuff was going to go smoothly. No. He acknowledges who God is, and he's going to embrace the limits of what they can do. So I want to go on, go back up a little bit, go back to chapter, or go back up to verse uh, 4 in chapter 4. This is how Nehemiah responds. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn, their ba turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. So Nehemiah could have done a lot of things when he gets criticism from these guys. But the first thing he does is he turns his face to God and he prays. He goes to God and he says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. They're in a lowly position. They need help. He's humbly acknowledging that they don't have the ability to defend and take care of themselves. Now, he could have done a lot of different things with this first round of opposition. He could have marched out to Tobiah and Sambalat again, 
thrown his instructions from the king in their face and told them to shut their mouths. Or he could have gone back out and he could have decided to insult them back and it could have turned in real quick to a big, your mama's so fat, your mama's so stupid jokes. I mean, you know, could have gone and escalated, who knows, to the point right then that they might have gotten so angry, maybe they'd kill him in person. But what does he do? He completely ignores them and he goes straight to God. He does not respond to them. He does not engage them. He goes to God, who's the only one who has any power to do anything about what's happening. And so he says in verse 4 and in chapter 6, after he turns his face to God and prays, it says, so we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So he ignores his critics, he goes to God, and he knows the work is supposed to continue. There were prophets that came before. Even God prophesied before that he was going to create a nation. They were going to turn their back on him and run from him and commit all kinds of evil against him. But yet in his kindness, he was going to come back and restore. So Nehemiah knew he was doing what God allowed him to do. And he didn't let the inner loop of fear or anxiety or all these things that people were saying about him or what they were supposed to be doing affect what he knew to be God's will. He pressed on and he moved forward. But then, as we saw, the threat gets real, right? It goes beyond trash talking and we get to the threat of physical invasion being real. And so what does he do then? Go to verse 9. He said, And we prayed to our God, and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In this set of verses, we see Nehemiah, in some ways, he hasn't changed at all. He goes straight to God first, and we prayed to our God. He remembers that God is the only one who has any ability to do anything about their situation. He's the only one that has any ability to give them any defense or to give them any victory. And as you read in, in verses 10, Picking up in verse 10, it says, And in June it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. And our enemies said, They will not see, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at this time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the spaces between the wall and in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans and with their swords and spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. So what does Nehemiah do? They're under threat of real attack. So he does organize an army, but he doesn't depend on himself. Think about the last 200 years of the Jewish people. It's not pretty. Jerusalem had been conquered three times. Three times people had come in, conquered. People had been forced to move. The reason they're there building this city is because it's an ash heap. It's rubble. God sent people there 100 years before to start to begin to restore the temple. They did not have one or 200 years of military success to draw on. They did not have a standing army that had won wars. They did not have some bad Navy SEALs and special forces that they could send in places to clean up things. They didn't have anything to draw on 
in recent history that would give him any kind of confidence. So what does Nehemiah do? He says, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because we're great? No. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So he makes this rousing cry to the people to remember God. He's the one who created them. He's the one who established them. He's the one who's going to reestablish them. And then he does something else that's very smart. He reminds them that they're not fighting with strangers. He organizes them, and he reminds them that they're fighting with their family. Not fighting their family. They're fighting alongside their family, their brothers, their sisters, their kinsmen. They're fighting with their family. The same is true for us today. We cannot hope in ourselves. We cannot hope in this church. We cannot hope in the Western world. We can only hope in God. We can only hope in his perfect plan and his sovereignty. And we fight together, linked in arms, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the same picture for us today, what they were dealing with. Ours is more in the unseen world sometimes than it is in the seen world of an army organizing to, to come against us as we physically build a wall but Satan is working the same behind the scenes. This is why Paul and Peter and so many New Testament writers labored to tell us how to serve each other and forgive each other and bear with each other and be humble and seek to build each other up and spur each other on. But another thing that Nehemiah does here, and this is something that cuts against me naturally very, very much. He embraces their limits. If you look in verses 15 to 23, he realizes the whole environment has shifted. Okay, you could almost think of it as like a pre-post-COVID or pre-post-9-11. If you were old enough to remember 9-11, people would always talk about, oh, remember, it was pre-9-11. You could go to the gate and tell people bye before they got on the plane. Um, no moss, right? So he knows that things have shifted and things are going to have to look different. They have more opposition. They have more threats. He's got more on his plate. You know what I do usually when that happens? I speed things up. Things are hard. Things are busy. Things aren't going well. I'm going to speed things up. And oftentimes that results in me relying on my own self instead of calling out to the Lord. Nehemiah goes the exact opposite direction. He slows things down in a big way. This is what he does. Pick up in uh, verse 15. He says, When our enemies heard it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the work on the wall, each to his work. But it's going to look a lot different. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction. The other half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, or breastplate. They had breastplates on. And the leaders stood beside the whole house of Jerusalem. Those who were building on the wall... Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on in the work with, uh, with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So what is Nehemiah doing? He's totally killed his productivity. He took half his workers and he now made them part of guards. They're standing around all day with spears, bows, swords, and breastplates. The other half are working with one arm. Now, because I said I recently helped my friend move, 
Two people, if you have both arms, can grab a couch. You got one arm, you need probably five or six people. Because you can't, you can't, you're weaker and you don't have the balance, so you get with two arms. So the other half, they're carrying their loads with one hand and they're carrying their weapon in the other hand. And even those who are the skilled labor who are building, they've got their sword strapped on their side, kind of getting in their way. So you could probably say roughly he's cut their productivity by probably more than three-fourths because you got half the people who can't work anymore. Some of those that are working are only working with one hand, which greatly reduces their productivity. So my Western way of thinking, like I'm tempted to say efficiency and productivity are gods to be worshipped. What are you doing, Nehemiah? You're killing it. You know how long this is going to take now? It's already a big project. But God is concerned with our hearts. He's concerned with our sanctification. He's concerned with bringing him glory more than he's concerned with certain results. So his route is often much different than what we would craft. It may seem much longer or much harder. But Nehemiah acknowledges where they are with the Lord and he embraces their limits. He slows things down. And this is something I feel like, even at 44, I'm just, I mean, just barely beginning to understand that God is concerned with our journey toward his glory, that there's not a certain amount of things that we need to check off or things that we need to be able to do to prove that we're his children, that we have to embrace our limits as people as husbands, as wives, as church members, as elders. Pastor Sean has done a great job in the last year of leading us as elders to embrace our limits and to depend on the Lord and not depend on ourselves. And so my heart's been so encouraged, probably more admonished, but also encouraged by this chapter, that we've got to slow down and we've got to let God do the work. Now, chapter 5, we're going to get to some heavy stuff. So... It has some messy, ugly stuff in it. Uh, There's extortion. There's bankruptcy. There's family members participating in human trafficking. Now, they've just had, they've gone through so much, the Jewish people have. It's been a long journey. But as we saw, they're actually starting to make progress. They're getting these gates built. They're filling in the wall. People hate it. People are opposing them. But they're making progress. They've banded together. They're remembering God who's great and awesome. They're willing to fight for each other. So you would think their, their unity has got to be in an all-time high. The opposition that they've overcome together has got to banded them together in a way that they can never be broken. And that's exactly the opposite of what we see. When you get to chapter 5, it's messy and it's ugly. None of those things brought them together. Pick up with me in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain, let us get access to food that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses just to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Before Nehemiah was there, there were heavy taxes on the people. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, meaning we've had to to give them over to labor. We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves 
Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. It's a messy, ugly situation where you have kinsmen exploiting and taking advantage of other kinsmen. They're all supposed to be there to rebuild the city of God, and yet some are using their power to extort and take advantage of their brothers and sisters. Derek Kinder, in his commentary, puts it this way. But the words implied a strict business relationship, and Nehemiah's charge is therefore that the lenders were behaving like pawnbrokers. You don't go to a pawn store if you have any other option. That's not a good place to get value. You show up there because it's a last resort. The lenders were behaving like pawnbrokers and harsh ones at that instead of like brothers. They were lending with only the best of cover and in their case, the worst, with the worst of motives. It was quite legal to demand a material pledge against a loan. And Nehemiah himself had probably exercised this right if you read in verse 10. But in hard times, legal rights to say nothing of wrongs can deal mortal blows. And we see in Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, God specifically forbade Jewish people to charge each other interest. He forbade their own kinsmen of charging each other interest. And it specifically mentions not charging interest on food. Twice here people are asking, we need to get food or we're going to die. These lenders were guilty of extortion and violating God's law. This is a bad situation. It's a ruthless situation and it could have gone sideways real fast. Think about it. You've got the accused, you have the accusers, and then you have Nehemiah. Now the accusers could have blamed Nehemiah. They could have said, hey, you're either an idiot and blind to this or you're in on it. They could have decided that Nehemiah was incompetent and tried to form a coup and get him out of power. They could have reacted violently. They could have destroyed property or killed people. They could have done a whole lot of things. Nehemiah himself as the leader could have gone a lot of wrong directions with this. He could have turned a blind eye. Or he could have said, hey, you're making a bigger deal out of this than it is. Or he could have said, look, the wall, rebuilding the wall, that's why we got the most important thing. Out of time to deal with these other issues? Get out of the way. The accusers likewise could have said, we didn't do anything wrong. We don't know what you're talking about. Or they could have used their power to try to suppress those who were accusing them. Look around in the world today. This thing could have gone sideways real quick, a lot of different ways. But what happens? God is at work and he's about to bring change. Lasting change. Redemption. So, this is what happens. Nehemiah, picking it up in verse 6. Again, people have been enslaved. Mortgages have seized fields and vineyards. So this is what it says in verse 6. And I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these words. And I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. It's going back to the law. They knew it was wrong. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. 
but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, this thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? He starts with, he could have gone straight to, you're exploiting these people, but he goes, ultimately your sin is against God. You are, you are flying in the face of the creator. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage, the exacting interest, which you're not supposed to be doing, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them, and we will do as you say. So God is at work, and he's about to bring change. It starts with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was angry and indignant, but he was self-controlled. He considers carefully how to respond to these people. He did not act rashly or go into a rage. He was deliberate and decisive in his actions, but he was not reckless and wild. And he brings them in and he starts where he started everything. Every time they get opposition, he turned his face to God. He brings them in. You're sinning against God. He brings them in to tell them the truth. That they're dishonoring God's law. Now, those in sin, those who had sinned, the ones who were caught, they owned it, and ultimately they restored everything to the people. But, initially it says they were silent. Sometimes we need a little help. Sometimes... We need a little nudge because when we've sinned, it is shameful and it is dishonoring to God. And sometimes we're frozen. So Nehemiah, instead of continuing to condemn them and shame them, he takes their silence as an acknowledgement and he goes and he tells them straight what they need to do. And he tells them to return the fields, the vineyards, the money exacted. All of these things. And tells them to stop doing it. And the accused agree to do it. And they return things to people. They just stop demanding interest. And then he makes them. He says, and I called the priests. And I made them swear to do as they promised. In our modern day, he's making them come in, raise their right hand, put their left hand on the Bible, and say, I promise to pursue the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then, after that, he said in verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment, like the bosom of his garment. And I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep the promise. So may they be shaken out and emptied. Now, if you've ever eaten something that's really messy, um, like cornbread will crumble around your mouth, crackers, sometimes you get stuff on you and you have to stand up and shake out. That's what Nehemiah is saying. You know what to do. You're doing it. If you go back to sinning, may God shake you out. Because it's God ultimately that you're going to have to answer to, not me. So he brings them in. And it appears that, again, unlike what we see a lot today, they're able to forgive and move forward. Go to the end of verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord 
And the people did as they promised. It's a beautiful picture of repentance and redemption. This chapter is good for us as people of God today because we are still sinners. The work is still messy. God did not remove the curse of sin as soon as you became a believer. The Holy Spirit is inside of you to sanctify you, to convict you, to move you forward. But unfortunately, there's still going to be sin against God and against other people. And we cannot expect to labor together and not be wounded. We cannot expect to labor together and not have people wound us. We cannot expect to labor under leaders that God has put in charge of our church and have them not make mistakes or sin against us. We cannot expect to have people in our homes and not have things go sideways sometimes. We can't expect to reach out to unbelievers and not make mistakes sometimes and wish that you had represented the gospel better. Jesus is constantly interceding for us and extending grace. The New Testament talks about him being in the throne room, exceeding, and Romans makes it clear that everywhere sin is, grace is right there to abound on top of it. And Paul tells us specifically how to respond in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. This is what he tells us as believers in Christ. Put on then. Why does he say put on? Because it's not natural. You're not born in it. You're reborn into the, the spirit. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Our position is secure. Our identity in Christ is secure. We are holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Why do you have to bear with somebody? Because you're not going to like everything. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Kingdom work is messy because sinners are involved. We must expect opposition We must expect heartaches. We must expect pain. We must expect sometimes to be hurt by those we love. But we must expect God to do the work. And we must expect him to give us grace. And we must expect him to change hearts. We must expect him to bear fruit. We must expect him to honor his word. In short, we must expect his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that your Old and New Testament blend perfectly together, pointing us to the redemption that we need, pointing us to the help that we need. I thank you, Father, for just being able to see your wisdom in action through the life of Nehemiah and Ezra. I thank you for being able to see the beautiful picture of having grace come in and change people's hearts. Jesus, I confess that our hearts are dull, our minds are numb sometimes. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to expect expect people to hear your word and respond and to come from darkness to light. Expect 
Expect us to be able to go to people and admonish and encourage and forgive. And I pray, Jesus, that you'll give us the humility to do it all in a way that you did. You were so gentle, you were so lowly, you were so patient, and you still are. And so we pray for your help this morning. In your name, amen.